Hey everybody, welcome to another edition of Ace on Music. I'm here joined by my producer Mark and my assistant Sean. This week we have part two of our interview with famed cover artist Johannes. And uh, check it out, I hope you enjoy it. You know, another, yeah. another one of the ones that, that, really, that I really liked that you were involved with is... Um, you know, one of the most iconic bands of the of the 70s and even of the 80s was Styx. And one of their seminal albums was, of course, um, the uh, the Paradise Theater album. And uh, when, when they recorded what amounts to more or less a sequel to that record, Return to Paradise, you took this, in the, you know, the original album cover had this dilapidated theater that was kind of falling apart and, you know, obviously was in disrepair and now you had the return to paradise and the theater just looking like as awesome as it as it would have in its heyday how did that whole that whole project come together and where did that idea come from the uh it was you know cmc records um you know tom lipsky um we i met him the year before at a at a convention he told me about his record company he was launching he knew i had done the allman brothers and he approached me about working with him so I had done a project up in the band Warren for him. And right after Warren, he came with me with five projects, Leonard Skinner, Styx, Dokken, Slaughter, I think. And uh, so it was, can you do these things for me? <laughs> Basically, I just signed these guys and, uh, and you know, introduced me to Styx, which had the original lead singer back then. Uh, mm-hmm. And he told me what the uh, title was, Return to Paradise. So I was... You know, it was just an obvious one. Uh, it, it, speaking to the band, it's like, this is what you want to do. And I found this uh, black and white photograph. I think it was a theater in New Jersey. It was like, um, it was in a flea market. As a matter of fact, I, I go to flea markets or things like that, and I find like old postcards. Uh, and a lot of record covers that I've done have been inspired by some of these. As a matter of fact, uh, Wake the Sleeper was a book my wife found of 1920s, 1930s, of pictures of Buddhas, but from Thailand, which looked different. And that mm-hmm. gave me the idea how to do Wake the Sleeper. Um, but with Sticks, it was the same situation. And then it was just basically doing the uh, Storm Ferguson process, which is the way he worked back then, which is they shot black and white photographs and they hand covered them, right, with an airbrush and retouched them. That's what I was doing all through the 70s and the 80s when there was no Photoshop. I would uh, we would shoot black and white photographs, like, you know, I would do a project with Mick and we would shoot black and white photos, and I would head, hand color them and we'd give them that surreal look. That's how Houses of the Holy was done, right? Um, so it looked like a cross between a painting and a photograph. You weren't really sure what you were looking at, but it had that look. And that's how we did the sticks thing. What got more involved was when I did their next album, Brave New World. But actually, that painting—that's an older painting for Brave New World. I had shown that to this gentleman, uh, passed away, a really good friend, Jim Lewis, when he was the vice president at Polygram in 1985, and I had submitted that as for his band they had put together, Emerson, Lake, and Powell. Uh, if you remember that, I and do. I, yeah, and uh, three to the broken power of three. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and then Great they agreed. Yep, yeah, yeah, that was uh, well. They couldn't get Carl, so they got cozy, and uh, 
Yeah. Better yes, choice, I think. But anyway. I mean, God bless. And they were, they're just they're two different styles. They're incredible drummers, both of them. Complete styles. I mean, if you come from a rock and roll background, then Cozy Powell's your man, you know? Absolutely. Well, you know, this, this brings up an interesting point. You have been doing cover art for decades. And in today's day and age, cover art is a different affair than it was, say, 20, 30 years ago. Um, what is your take on the current state of cover art? You know, like I, I'm in a position where record labels are constantly saying to me for my artists that as far as they're concerned, they would like a, you know, a one inch square box that just has the name of the band in big bold letters because that's where most people are going to see it on Spotify or iTunes or whatever. I, I won't buckle to that because I love, I love artwork on covers so much, but what's your, what's your feeling about where cover art is today? Um, I, I just, I don't think Mick actually rock puts it the best. As long as rock stars are ugly, there's always going to be room for me and you <laughs> to do our work. <laughs> you make really bad people look good. And that's essentially that. I, uh, oh God, you know, these comments go back, these arguments forever. And I just think, um, look, look at the explosion of vinyl right now. And it ain't because it's us old fogies who are being sentimental. Yeah. Is my daughter thinks it's so cool to look at this stuff because the younger generation perceives it as a merchandise item rather than as a sound delivery item, right? Uh, and it's just there's so many reasons why the record companies have crashed and burned and being myopic is if i'm saying that word correctly um <laughs> is, is a major reason i mean you know people look back at the heydays of the 70s and the 80s and say oh look at the great art you guys could do whatever you want everything was like no you got you know these guys had to fight it i mean i record covers got done in the early 70s primarily they were done in-house right it took right. artists to buckle the system and say no no i'm not going to use the art director of columbia i'm going to use my friend this guy that i know and he's great Allah. i mean storm uh, people say he was arrogant it wasn't arrogant Storm got used to just working for the artist not for the record company he never went and pitched his art to a record company. They would never allow him to do the things that he wanted to do, like not putting the name of the band on the cover. Are you kidding me? That was hair. Yeah. When, when he showed Dark Side of the Moon and the record label had a, a meltdown when they saw that. They're like, they're like, oh, this is nice art. And what are you going to put the title in? and 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 the, the title of the album? It's like, there isn't any. Like, what? You're not going to put the name of the band on the album? Are you out of your mind? Uh, I mean, and he even he did that not just with Dark Side of the Moon. He did it with, uh, you know, Wish Wish You Were Here was another example of that. Zeppelin, Zeppelin the House of the Holy didn't have it had a, an oboe that you ripped out, but the actual packaging never had the name of the band on the. No, Led Zeppelin Four to this day, nobody can decide what that album's actually called. Is it Four Symbols? Is it Led Zeppelin Four? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but getting back to your initial question. I had run-ins with creative directors and art directors, even back at that age. One of these guys told me, look, as much ink and as 
uh, effort and uh, strength goes in, into creating a record cover as a box of cornflakes, okay? It's packaging, get over it. Uh, and he said to me, look, the greatest record cover art is not gonna hide musical garbage. That was his reasoning. And I, I said, yeah, let's, I can create a great record cover if the band stinks, I get it. And vice versa, I've seen uh, great albums, uh, you know, great bands who have mediocre art and they kind of made it. But, and here's why I differ in the opinion. If you combine both, right, that it really comes down, which is all they care about, the bottom line, it, it, it really, um, uh, really brings home the um, how huge a band could be. And what I point to is take a band like Yes. If you take the name Yes, primarily it is a um, very um, silly name. But yeah. <laughs> when, you, when you say Yes, other than incredible music they write, the visuals, the world, the Roger Dean creator around them, it just changed their identity. Pink Floyd, if you take the name, again, and I can go down the line, Pink Floyd, Iron Maiden. Now, you can argue that Iron Maiden would have been you know, just as popular and, and it's huge because they wrote great music. But once it was combined with Derrick Riggs, then it was just a whole other universe. I mean, well, I Eddie. The cover, the, I mean, I think cover art in general takes, like you said, the genius music and elevates it to an almost iconic status because when when people start associating the imagery of a band with the music it it, it takes love of that music to a whole new level in my opinion yeah and 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 as far as just simply marketing is concerned i kept running into the same problems like all of a sudden you know the question i was getting in the 80s was well, everything now is so small. It's five by five inches. It's a little CD idea. Uh, you know, the days of record cover art are gone. Who cares anymore? Was that? Well, you know something? I, I, I had a different opinion. Um, very few bands got gay folds. Back then, you would just crank out a painting or a, an illustration, do some simple liner notes, and boom, project was taken care of, you know? Uh, but, uh, but if you do a... Um, uh, but then in the 80s, you had an explosion. I mean, all of a sudden, designers had to think of 3D, not just the cover art. So you had the digipacks and the boxes and the pillboxes and just the singles with posters in them and the and patches. I mean, it re I mean, once creative is creative, it opened up a thing. All it is is just your palette keeps changing. You still have to communicate, either be digitally or visually or whatever. The bottom line is, you're selling a product. You take a band, okay, and and then you figure out what to do to visually create an image for them, a style, whatever that may be, right? And however that image is conveyed, how it's going to look on the website, how the videos are going to look, how the graphics going to look. And right now, actually, visuals are even bigger, more important than in the '70s and '80s, because right now. Let's be honest. It's about touring and merchandising, and you better have some damn good merch. Uh, that's how they're going to make money, and that's where I come into play. 
that's that's the thing. You're saying, you know, what are you going to be doing? Well, you know, you still need Mick Rock to do an incredible looking photograph, right? Because that's PR. That's their image. And you need visual artists to come out with great graphics. Um, you go into Hot Topic, their biggest selling T-shirt is that white ghost, that logo that was for the Misfits. I bet you 90% of yeah. the people buy that shirt have no idea that's the misfits doesn't matter that's a great image you know yeah that 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 has haunted several of the bands that i worked with over the years i mean motorhead has that iconic pig skull thing that i mean and and you see everybody wearing it you know it, it it it's just everywhere i mean the the lips logo from from rolling stones i mean everybody knows that one but be, before we before we get to the end here i i know that you you are familiar you i mean you wrote this incredible book with martin popoff about album cover art and all that and i know that you know a, a lot of the other in your pantheon of of great cover artists and just to wrap things up here, I'd like to ask you about a few of the artists that I know that we are mutual fans of, and just to get your take on their work. Let's uh, let's start with with the recently uh, deceased and much missed Richard Corbin. Oh, I, I you know look, if you grew up in the late seventies and you uh, read Heavy Metal magazine and you were into comic books, Richard Corbin was a god. Uh, and of course, it was no surprise that Meatloaf, you know, was young, up and coming. He was a rock and roll guy, and you know, it was it was the culture. And 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 Corbin was just amazing. I mean, you know, he, the way his take on bodybuilders, and of course, famously known for women with very huge uh, breasts, which is what he loved. The band, Nick, which was, that was his specialty. But I mean, I mean, look at the cover, Bat Out of Hell. I mean, my God, that is incredible. And I, and, Easily and, one of the most you know, iconic covers of all time. And it, I mean, underground comic books, uh, exp- I mean, you had, you had the traditional comic book guys, you know, Marvel and DC, but uh, underground comics really literally exploded in the mid late 70s. And Richard Corbin was one of the reasons, you know, I mean, he, he influenced people like even like Ralph Baxi, who did, you know, the original Lord of the Rings as an animated film. And it, it definitely Ralph, influenced yeah. me. Oh my God! Some of the things he would do. I mean, if you if you look at Richard Corbin, you know, comic book was like works of art. I mean, the way he would do the the psychedelic backgrounds, like the way he would mix oils and and, and do all these weird patterns, and it was just wow, incredible. That's why I think that I think the 1980 heavy metal film really did a good job of capturing his style in that sequence they did on his on his den character. I mean, like you said, oh, yeah. the psychedelic backgrounds and everything that they were doing. I mean, it really grabbed into it. And another set of artists who really were important to me and I know that we've talked about them on our, you know, personally before are uh, Greg and Tim Hildebrandt. Yeah, those guys, what a great story. Um the closest I got to Greg Hildenbrad was um, Paul O'Neill. I knew him when he was a young manager and I met him at Lieber and Krebs and he went on to create the Trans-Siberian Orchestra and be the mastermind behind it. And he was always a fan of this kind of stuff. And uh, the Hildenbrads, you know, they wanted to, they grew up in the late thirties and they wanted to work for Walt Disney. That was their dream. Um, they loved doing those paintings and, they struggled for years, years 
um, nobody recognized him, and they all came together for him in 1976, 75, I believe. The um, Lord of the Rings had really caught on with the movement of the youth at the time. You know, actually, Uriah Heep, the song Demons and Wizards, the whole album is, you know, a lot of it has to do with Lord of the Rings, but, you know, especially yeah. the song The Wizard, you know. Um, so there was... Uh, they had put out a calendar of Valentine books, I believe, put out a calendar of dead, a bunch of different artists who they're taking along of the rings and it kind of sold well. And they thought, you know, instead of having just a bunch of guys submitting stuff and a lot of them was kind of cartoonish, some was good, some wasn't, let's find a really good artist to do this. And they asked for submissions uh, and these two guys decided they lived in New Jersey and they, from the way Valentine, the art director, recalls it, they, um, she says, he remembers that day. It was a rainy day and it was the end of the day. He was getting ready to go home and his secretary beeps him and says, there's these two guys who have shown up and they said, they have an artwork they want to show you. It's the Lord of the Rings. And Valentine's like, you got to be kidding me, right? I got to get out of here. It's like, it goes like, no, Ian. He goes, no, just send him home. Tell him, you know, uh, no more submissions. I'm done. And he goes, Ian, you really got to come outside and look at these guys. I mean, I, I haven't seen anything like them. And he walks out there and he finds these two identical twins, you know, late 40s at the time, bearded, dressed in top hat and whatever. And they had these garbage bags. That was their portfolio. And because, you know, you can get done. And they open up the garbage bags and they spill and it's all these drawings and they were incredible but drawings just you know charcoal drawings and the guy says i he was just stunned he's like my god he said he called it like you know he had seen hundreds of portfolios he hadn't seen anything like this and he said to them can you paint as good as you draw and he said oh yeah oh we, we definitely would we definitely do and he said, okay, can you do one for me? And he goes, yeah. They came back like a week later, and they showed him the painting. And, and he was just blown away. It was like, I, I, it was Gandalf, I think. And he was like, unbelievable. He goes, so how did you guys do this again? And the way they work is, they're identical twins. They would work. You know, one of them's passed away, sadly. Mm -hmm. um, on canvas, they both work at it at the same time. One guy paints one side, and one paints the other. Or like one guy yeah, would go back to I'd often yeah. been told one it, starts in one corner, one starts in the other, and they kind of yeah, meet in the middle. Yeah. It, 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 it's just incredible. So out comes the calendar, and it's just an explosion. They were so excited that they showed up the day that the calendars came in at Valentine's Press, and they all grabbed like about 200 of them each, like, you know, and they ran downstairs on Fifth Avenue, and they were all dressed like anti-century garb. And they started singing Christmas carols and they were passing the calendars around for free to anybody who was walking down the street. They thought it was the greatest thing in the world. Well, those calendars, know, I tell you, when I was a kid, those calendars, my mother was a huge Tolkien fan and she bought those calendars and they were on my wall until I moved out from home. I mean, I, I had those pictures, the Hildebrands everywhere. And then, of course, the next year, they, they got they just tapped to do them. The Star Wars uh, uh, movie poster, right? But, but going on from there, 
you want to laugh? Nobody wanted to deal with that. They thought it was going to be the stupid film that nobody cared about and everything. They got all excited about it, you know, <laughs> and they, yeah, they did the first Star Wars poster, you know, and it was like, boom. Um, as a matter of fact, they were working on an animated film, right? Um, called Urshirak. They came up with a whole thing. They did a presentation. I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. Book and everything. And when they were told, everybody said it was the best, greatest presentation they ever saw. And everything. And they said, look, because back then, technology, they said, this movie's going to be way too expensive to make, so we can't make it. Which is one of the well, reasons they... uh, Rings was made as an animated film for the same reasons. People said, oh, well, no, yeah. you're never going to be able to shoot this. I mean, and they yeah. went on to do in, in the album, but pulling it back into music. I mean, the Sabbath covers they did and things like that. I mean, they were yeah. incredible. But, and, uh, uh, they did Star Castle, Citadel. I know them all. I know I'm, I'm, I'm a fan. Of, I, again, if, if you're a comic book nerd, which is what I was. <laughs> you know, <laughs> all these guys are your idols. Fantasy art. You know, you know it's so really funny because uh, just something that happened recently. Um, fantasy art and science fiction art was looked upon as, you know, you know, pitifully by art collectors, you know, and believe me, I respect them, you know, Warhol and Basquiat and all those guys, right? Amazing guys. And I can, I can understand a Jackson Pollock nowadays or, you know, or, 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 you know, I mean, well, stuff like Salvador Dali, that's an obvious one, but, but fine art, but this art was looked upon as art that was, you know, commercial, not real, not flaky. And that has all changed in the last five years. Um, fantasy art, not in Europe as much, but definitely in the U.S. Europe had caught on to this a while ago. All of a sudden now, maybe because it's a difference in the generation, us, perhaps, that we are the, the, the you know, the, the older people now who control money and so on, um, has become the next thing to be collected. And with the alarm bells went off is what the prices it's fetching. Frank Frazetta, I don't know if you've ever seen a Frank Frazetta original. They're pretty huh, small. Yeah, they yeah are. they're very they go, small. One just sold at Heritage Auction, Auctions for, you know, in the six figures. So, I mean, they go for yeah, a lot five, of money. Five, yeah, 5.3 million. Yeah. For so. one of and well, any one I, of his I was going to say, I want to thank you, uh, Johannes, for joining us on the show today. I really appreciate your time. Um, you know, I hope that you'll come back again and talk to us some more because I know that there's just a ton more things yeah, that we've got to talk about. I love talking to you. Yeah, the <laughs> thing is, I think we have to go crazy because we're both, you know, we're both music nuts. <laughs> yeah, we can, right. we can do our own universe. Yeah. <laughs> All right. And I want to thank everybody for tuning in to the episode. Um, your support is always appreciated. You can always write to us at acetalksmusic at gmail.com with feedback on the shows or ideas for other topics you'd like us to talk about. And I want to thank Mark and Sean for joining me here today and especially Johannes for his time. And I hope that uh, you come check us out over on the patreon.com platform where we air our after hour show. And uh, in the meantime, we'll see you next time and please stay safe.